Over four decades ago, medical device pioneers John Abley and Pete Nicholas co-founded Boston Scientific to get life-saving technologies into the hands of physicians. Today, thousands of Boston Scientific employees are continuing that mission. We'll begin to tell their stories here on the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. We're going to be delving into the fascinating world of atrial fibrillation. We'll be talking about the many therapies that Boston Scientific offers. And I had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Ken Stein, who's the Senior Vice President and Global Chief Medical Officer at Boston Scientific, and also Nick Spadeo Anello, who is Global President of Electrophysiology. We covered the many modalities that Boston Scientific has to treat atrial fibrillation patients or people with atrial fibrillation who need correction, and uh, talked a bit about the uh, the future as well. So, great conversation. We talked pulse field ablation. We talked about Watchmen and many, many other uh, opportunities to, again, help pay patients, help people with atrial fibrillation. So, I'm sure you will enjoy this conversation. But before we begin, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Dassault Systems. I'm here with Steve Levine. He is Senior Director of Virtual Human Modeling at Dassault Systems. Steve, tell me all about Dassault Systems. Dassault Systems has really been a pioneer in the use of digital technologies now for over 40 years. Most people don't know the company by its name, but they really know us through our world-class brands, the products they use, such as Katia for the design of really complex machines like cars and planes, or SolidWorks, which is used throughout the medical device industry, Simulia for engineering, Delmia for manufacturing, or even Metadata for clinical trial management. And what really sets us apart from other tech companies is our belief that virtualization is really the closest thing to your imagination. But what's different is that using 3D technologies, you can bring it into the real world where you can test it, you can share your ideas with other people, collaborate, apply physics and chemistry to predict behavior. A lot of people are just discovering virtual reality now as if it's a new and novel capability, but we've been actually using it and pushing the limits of that technology now since day one. And what's exciting to us is that we're now able to bring that technology and focus on the medtech and healthcare industry. We'll hear more from Steve Levine about the Soul Systems a little later in the podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, Go to 3ds.com. That's the website for DeSoul Systems, 3ds.com. Well, Dr. Ken Stein and Nick Spadea Anello, welcome to the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Thanks, Tom. Thank you for having us. Uh, I had to catch myself. I've had you both on the uh, on the on our Device Talks Weekly podcast, and uh, it's like when you were a kid and you saw your teacher in the supermarket, just all these worlds jumbling together, and I got a little dis- disoriented. But uh, happy to revisit the uh, electrophysiology business and, and and atrial fibrillation. So much going on in this space for Boston Scientific, Doctor Stein. Perhaps you could just start us off with a, a primer on AFib. How prevalent is it? And maybe just give us a sense of a high-level overview of where medical devices sort of intervene and, and stop or, or treat or mitigate that disease. 
Oh, absolutely, Tom. I'll begin by saying that the atrial fibrillation is the most common sustained arrhythmia that's seen in medical practice. In the U.S. alone, the estimate is that one out of every four Americans over the age of 40 will develop AFib at some time in our lives. Wow. And it's not just a problem in the U.S. I must hate using this word nowadays, but it's a global pandemic. It, this is something that affects everyone everywhere. And it's a disease of aging. And so as, as our population ages, as lives get extended, get longer, we're only going to see more and more atrial fibrillation. Now, atrial fibrillation can cause several different issues. First, it's a rapid, irregular heart rhythm. The top chambers of the heart are just not beating in synchrony. And so patients can feel symptoms, feel, feel palpitations, feel a racing heart an irregular heart, may, may get short of breath, or may get tired easily. Uh, the other problem with atrial fibrillation is because the upper chambers aren't beating well in synchrony, blood can pull in those chambers. And if that happens, the blood clot can form. And if that blood clot then gets dislodged, goes into the general circulation, it can cause a stroke or a heart attack, or frankly, catastrophic. And so when we look to treat atrial fibrillation, we look both at what we can do to restore normal rhythm, get rid of the symptoms, but also what we can do to reduce that risk of stroke. So high level, where do medical devices that Boston Scientific has and, and the field overall, where are you trying to do? We'll talk about ablation. We'll talk about some of the other tools, but where are the primary points of, of intervention? Tom, actually, one of the things I'd say is that we've had a very deliberate strategy to try to provide patients and treating physicians with the most comprehensive portfolio of devices to both diagnose and then treat atrial fibrillation. Uh, and so from a diagnostic standpoint, we have both implantable devices and wearable devices to measure the heart rhythm. These came from our acquisition of a company called Preventus to do patch-based cardiac monitoring, as well as our internal development of an implantable cardiac monitor called LuxDX that can track the heart rhythm, notify physicians if there are any abnormalities. And then, right, once diagnosed, what do you do to treat it? And basically, right, there are two different sets of therapy avenues that correspond to what I said earlier, managing symptoms, restoring a normal rhythm, and preventing stroke. And so on the preventing stroke side, we were the first company in the United States and still the leading company by far to have an approved device to mitigate the risk of embolic stroke and atrial fibrillation. That's our Watchman device. And then on the treatment side, we've invested very heavily in the full spectrum of therapeutic modalities that are used to restore normal rhythm through a procedure that's called ablation. One of the things, you know, as we've sort of looked at and developed that strategy, and, and Nick, I don't know if you want to weigh in here, yeah. right? There, there's one of the things that is really a, an issue is that there are still a very large number of patients with atrial fibrillation run diagnosed. And even once diagnosed, both in the United States and certainly globally, there, there are many, many patients who don't get the kinds of treatments that we know would benefit them. Yeah, no, Nick, I definitely wanted to bring you in. I mean, you've, we've seen a lot of growth in, in the portfolio, the electrophysiology portfolio, and I know you joined this business 
a year or two ago. I remember when we talked, you had previously been a structural art to sort of build this out. Give us, uh, Dr. Stein has already sort of introduced us to a few products, but give us a sense, not only of your portfolio, but also of your acquisition strategy over the last couple of years, because you folks have been quite busy. Yeah. So Tom, first of all, it's great to be uh, back with you. I think the work you're doing in form field and really bring awareness has made a difference. And what I'll tell you is Ken nicely went into the clinical unmet need. You know, you've got 39 million people throughout the world that suffer from atrial fibrillation, for example, that are looking to somehow or another alleviate some major clinical consequences. So it starts with, you know, when you look at the portfolio, what can we do to bring better solutions to what are problems today? And so as you think about, call it rhythm disorders specifically, and where ablation comes into the uh, equation, we look at just the traditional way of performing an ablation and how do we make things potentially better for patients? Um, How do you make things simpler for operators? How do you make things more efficient for hospitals or payers? And we start with that in mind and understand what are the the problems today, even though there, there are some decent solutions that they're currently working with. And right now, when you look at just you know, call it the solutions that exist for patients in terms of being treated, the time it takes to be consulted by a physician to actually get a therapeutic delivery could be weeks or months and even, you know, quarters, depending on which institution you are visiting. And so we see that being a big problem because a patient should be treated as soon as possible. And there's a lot of evidence that Ken can talk to that shows the sooner you treat a patient, the sooner you're going to get better clinical outcomes. And we know that the procedure, uh, call it today, you know, when you do an ablation, you take anywhere from, you know, call it 60 to 120 minutes or more. How do we make things more efficient for the patient and for the operator, simpler? And so the workflow doesn't get really hung up in terms of being able to treat these patients in a timely and effective way in an institution. And obviously, time is money. I mean, some of these technologies could be rather expensive and the follow-up associated with it and uh, call it clinical outcomes uh, could always be better. You always strive to try to do more than you can. So when you look at the portfolio, we start with the problem. And as you look at our portfolio today, it's evolved from RF therapies in our EP ablation portfolio to some of the more advanced cryoablation techniques to now pulse field ablation, uh, which we think could be incredibly transformative. And we're starting to see that in markets where we had that technology approved. And also, you know, trying to simplify things with gaining access to the left side of the heart with the acquisition of our Valus technology. So when you look at the portfolio, how do you make things better in terms of outcomes for patients, simpler for operators, much more efficient for hospitals? And we think the technologies that we've acquired as of recently really helps try to make the solutions better for some of the problems that exist, even with some of the therapies people are working with today to advance care. Interesting. Ken, can you take us into the clinic? You were or are a cardiac electrophysiologist. What is the procedure like? Is it complex? Does it re- obviously it requires a level of skill, but is it something that if someone has the tools and has obviously the training, it can be done easily enough? Or is there a lot of finesse, a lot of touch, a lot of things that really separate highly skilled practitioners from maybe for the rest of the crowd? How do I say this nicely? <laughs> you know, I, I, I always say, you know, in, in, I mean, and beyond, but in any given room, half the doctors in that room are in the bottom half of doctors in the room. It, it just there always is going to be a, a, a spectrum of people's skills, and that I don't think there's any wrong with saying that. It's just acknowledging reality, and it does get it, it, to our strategy. 
right? Part of the issue, and how do you deal with this pandemic of atrial fibrillation in a way that's scalable and sustainable? You have to democratize the procedure. You have to turn it from a procedure, right, that only the most skilled or the cream of the crop can do into something where you can get reproducibly good, reproducibly safe and reproducibly quick results, right, from the typical practitioner. So this is something that that, that has evolved considerably from when I was doing these procedures. You know, and if you, if you go back, you know, 14, 15 years ago when I was at Cornell, you know, this was an incredibly painstaking and incredibly detailed procedure. But the tools have evolved. And, and some of the evolution of tools are things that, 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 that Nick already mentioned to you, right? So one of the fundamental issues is in order to do these ablations, we have to bring our therapeutic catheters across a wall of the heart, the wall that separates the right atrium from the left atrium. So that's, that's something called the interatrial septum, right? And again, back, back in the, the, the Stone Ages when I was doing this, when you literally took a needle that, well, you can't see this. I mean, I run a podcast, but, you know, I mean, it's a, a needle that's sort of the size of a small human being, right, in terms of length. And wow. introduce it from the leg all the way up to the heart and then puncture across that septum. Now, when you, you can imagine that is not a procedure that you want just anyone doing on. All right. And that has evolved now with an approach that is safer, an approach that is more reproducible, and an approach that's certainly more efficient that was pioneered by a company called Bayless. And we closed the acquisition and acquired a portion of Bayless that uses radio frequency energy, again, to reproducibly, quickly, and safely get across that septum so you can bring your catheters into the left atrium. And then the other thing that's, that's changed has been the introduction of better technology for mapping arrhythmias in the left atrium. And we've talked before about our arrhythmia system really the, the first and best system out there for high-density, high-definition mapping of arrhythmias, and also getting to alternate ways of doing ablation. Uh, so in the U.S., we recently had a cryoablation catheter approved for ablation of atrial fibrillation. And so this is now a second-generation system that uses cold energy, freezing through a balloon, to isolate the areas that typically cause atrial fibrillation in, in human beings. And, and those are the pulmonary veins, the veins that drain blood flow from the lungs into the heart itself. And so this is a procedure that, that already is much more reproducible in people's hands and typically quicker than the way everyone used to have to do it, which was to take what's called a radiofrequency ablation catheter and use heat energy and just go point by point by point by point all around the veins to try to isolate them. So that's already a major advance, but the next big advance is a completely new energy source that's called pulse field ablation that was pioneered by a company that we bought called Farapulse. They're the leaders in pulse field ablation. And the Farapulse technology, again, promises to make this procedure even safer even more efficient and at least as effective as the thermal ablation modalities. Fascinating. Nick, when we talked last, 
You were just, I think I just closed on the Bayless acquisition. It was a large acquisition. It was almost uh, 1.75 billion. I was going to say almost 2 billion, but that's a lot to round up. Uh, how is the integration gone? The acquisition's over. Dr. Stein gave a great sort of overview of what it's able to do, but what has it meant for your sales team to sort of be able to provide this additional benefit? How, how does that fit into their into their bags? Yeah, so great question. I, I'm excited because we're market leaders throughout the world uh, and crossing over to the left side of the heart, which is a very important step in this procedure. It's an elective procedure. Most of these procedures are elective. And so the last thing you want is, you know, when you're trying to gain access, precision to the left side of the heart, that you have a tool that does so and simplifies things for the operator and makes things more effective. And we've seen that. The nice thing is that it's exceeded our expectations. We knew it was a big growth area for us, continues to be a big growth area for us. And so the integration in terms of just evolving the technology, trying to integrate it with some of the newer technologies Ken was highlighting with our Polar X uh, cryoablation system and our Ferropulse system. So these will be technologies that we're going to integrate with our transeptal crossing system with Bayless now, our access solution system. And so we've exceeded expectations in terms of what we thought we could do in terms of treating patients. And we're excited because the technology really exemplifies itself uh, with the user experience. When a user uses this technology, it certainly simplifies things. It makes things a lot more precise in terms of where they want to position that catheter on the left side of the heart to really drive uh, better overall outcomes and results. And again, that kind of fits into our overall mission is just how do you simplify things? How do you drive better outcomes for the patients and more efficiencies for the, the hospitals and the payers? And so we're really excited about what it has brought and what it will continue to bring in the future as we see the number of ablation patients that we treat and watchman patients that we treat with uh, the ability to cross over the left side of the heart and do so in a really meaningful and effective way. Interesting. We'll take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, DeSoul Systems. I'm speaking with Steve Levine. He is Senior Director of Virtual Human Modeling at DeSoul Systems. Steve, tell me, how does DeSoul Systems work with medical device companies? Working with med device companies is really the best part of my job. What we do is we provide these companies with a platform that creates what we call digital continuity across all of the operations that they have from the earliest phases of creating ideas for their products all the way through the regulatory approval. I lead the team that's developing a new and previously missing piece of that value chain, which is fully functioning computer models of human body and organ systems. So the researchers can actually understand the patient's medical conditions, design, test new treatments in human models, rather than relying on costly lab setups or in animal models. I like to call them crash test dummies for medical devices. So say you're designing a new LVAD or a surgical robot using computer-aided design tools, you now have a realistic 3D patient to use before you ever even build a prototype. From a business perspective, you might say we focus on eliminating the massive translational problem of going from the lab to the clinic that these days really limits the innovation in medical devices. So, Steve, we hear a lot of these days about things like digital twins and the metaverse. How does that all apply to medical devices? We think for the most part, what we're really all talking about is the integration of the virtual worlds that companies have been using internally for their R&D 
with the consumer world that people now see, which is really profound. Bringing these two worlds together is really a powerful metaphor. Uh, we like to use the term virtual twin, which describes uh, the connection between these two worlds. For us, we, we've been doing this for many years. We use this term to include realistic models of everything from surgical robots to manufacturing lines, all the way to a patient's heart or brain or kidney, et cetera. There's no doubt that the digital transformation that's now happening in healthcare is a game changer. We think it's primarily because digital tools are the language of machines, uh, which opens up the world of robotics, the use of artificial intelligence everywhere, and of course, advanced visualization that helps clinicians interpret the complex data sets that they're now getting from everywhere. Finally, Steve, these are exciting times. How do you see the medtech industry changing in the future? Well, we hear a lot about personalized care, patient-centric medicine, et cetera, but somehow the patient's not actually been in the conversation. So I think with digital health, patients will actually have the ability to behave more like consumers, researching their treatments in detail, shopping around and expecting more rapid and cost-effective responses with evidence they can actually understand. We think virtual twin technologies will be at the heart of that process. It's really the best way to capture the complexity of all of the care they're getting and kind of a universal way for the team all around the patient's care to communicate and share experience. We even see regulators now recognizing that the current model for clinical trials is outdated and including virtual twins in some form of synthetic patients is not only more cost-effective, but reduces uncertainty and can be far more ethical. So I think companies who truly understand this will develop close, long-term relationships with their customers. They'll be the winners by expanding their customer base easily by an order of magnitude as their patients become consumers and much more empowered. All right. Well, thanks again to DeSoul Systems for sponsoring this episode. Thanks to Steve Levine, Senior Director of Virtual Human Modeling for joining us today. And if you'd like to find out more information about DeSoul Systems, go to its website. It is three, the number three, ds.com. Ken, if we could just drill down a little more on pulse field ablation, and then I could like to get back to you and sort of understand how that market's going, because that's becoming a more competitive space. What is pulse field ablation? How is it for a layperson like me? How, how is it different? How is it an advance than than previous ablation. You went over to a little bit, but what what exactly is it doing differently and why is it superior and why are so many companies rushing to get their own pulse field ablation tool? Yeah, Tom, I hope you don't mind if, if I maybe reframe the question a little bit because I, I, I am very careful not to okay. speak generically about pulse field ablation. So we can talk about what the advantages of pulse field ablation can be when it's done well. But they're not necessarily inherent in the idea of pulsed field ablation itself. And, and the beauty of pulsed field ablation is if you tune it properly, and I'll, I'll say what I mean by that in a moment, right, is that it can be relatively selective for cardiac tissue. And right, the disadvantage of thermal ablation, whether it's heat or cold, is that all tissues in the body are sensitive to heat and cold. And so whenever you're ablating with those techniques, you run the risk, not just of damaging the tissue that you want to damage in the heart, but also damaging surrounding tissue. You can injure the esophagus, which 
actually when it happens can be almost invariably fatal. You can wow. injure and narrow the veins that are supplying blood from the lungs to the heart and cause tremendous symptoms. You can damage the nerve that actually makes your diaphragm, that makes you breathe. Again, I kind of don't have to go into the why, that's not a good thing right. when, when that happens. All right. And so the promise of pulse field ablation with a technology like Therapulse is that if you do it right, you can ablate within the heart and avoid any of these, you know, really the most feared complications of the procedure. Now, now what does it mean to do it right? And, and this is, I think, is where the rubber hits the road and where I sort of worry a bit, you know, when, when people just start talking about pulse field ablation without looking at a specific system like Therapulse. Because it's very different from anything we've used previously. And, and so to be able to ablate effectively, but still avoid these kinds of complications is really highly dependent on three things. It's dependent on the shape and configuration of your ablation catheter, right? That determines what the shape is of the electric field, the pulsed field is that gets generated. And, and Farapulse is unique at this point in, in terms of the systems that, that are well into clinical testing and having been developed from the ground up as a pulse field ablation catheter. Second, there's the waveform. So this is actually sort of the, the, the secret sauce of, you know, not just what is it a pulse field, but what are the pulses? And mm. How many get delivered and what's the timing and what's the amplitude, et cetera. And again, that, that obviously plays a big role in being able to ablate tissue without causing thermal damage. And then last is the dosing recipe. Right? So where do you put your lesions in the heart? How many of them are they? What's the configuration of the catheter when you do that? And again, you know, Therapulse got a very early head start on doing this in this space. Are the leaders in terms of published clinical data to date? Uh, and I think really you know, far ahead of anyone else that I'm aware of at this point in having right, compelling short-term and long-term clinical data that, that you can use the Farapulse PFA technology, again, to be at least as effective as thermal ablation, to be safer than thermal ablation, and to be significantly more efficient than thermal ablation. Nick, and thank you for that. You found a not only a better way to ask me a question, but to answer it. You answered it so well as well. <laughs> but Nick, what does that mean? I mean, we, uh, as again, someone in the media who's hearing about other companies who are developing systems, calling them false field ablation, and, and I'm sure they are. How, how are you sort of approaching this? Is it important for Boston Scientific to be sort of the first mover in this space, or is it just important for you to be the right mover in the space? I mean, I think you have a head start in terms of clinical approval and such. Maybe you give us also an update on on where we are with Firepulse. I think you're expecting FDA approval soon if you haven't already had it. I, I was doing some Googling before I got on. I, I forget what <laughs> <Yeah>. I found. <laughs> yeah. So a couple of things. Maybe uh, the easy answer is we expect FDA approval sometime in 2024. Uh, okay. So we publicly stated sometime the, the middle of the back half of the year is when we should see approval. So we're working closely with FDA on that, and uh, we feel good about our timing. Maybe what does it mean? I'm excited about everything that we have in our portfolio, but I'm especially excited about Ferropulse and electroporation for the reason you can outline. I think you can be very selective about tissue that you can electroporate. Really, you know, you want to kill tissue cells that 
you know, aren't needed that are creating the root of the problem. And you want to preserve as much of those cells as you can to keep good, healthy tissue. You don't want to terminate good, healthy tissue unnecessarily, which you can do with some of these other energy modalities. So I'm excited because as Ken alluded to, the waveform in Ferropulse is unique. And we've seen that now with the advent data that was published a few months ago, that you know it, it works really, really well. It works as good as traditional uh, energy modalities. And it just happens to be incredibly efficient. You know, again, you know, being able to treat more patients in a hospital, in a lab, a cath lab day is a meaningful difference for hospital administrators. And it's a meaningful difference for patients because they don't have to wait that long to be treated so they can live a longer, better life a lot sooner. And so Ferropulse is unique in its own way because it is the only technology that was built from the ground up on electroporation. Okay. A lot of these other technologies were built, you know, they were retrofitted with other energy modalities in mind. Um, and I think what seemed too good to be true in the past on whether or not electroporation could supersede some of these other energy modalities started to become a reality the last couple of years. Now we've treated well over 25,000 patients. Uh, I'm excited because we're working with people in the markets where Ferropulse is approved that we've never worked with. And the reason being is that people do see the differentiator because they've got other strategic PFA offerings that are available to them. And the simplicity, durability that they're experiencing with the patients they're treating, the safety, as Ken alluded to, we believe that this procedure can potentially be much safer as one gets more experience and we get more data. When you look at the real world, it, it, it certainly starts to lean in that direction. And so we're excited because we can bring better outcomes. We can bring, again, more efficiency and what we think is potentially a much safer procedure. We haven't seen any thermal damage to the esophagus uh, to date. We haven't seen anything in terms of um, pulmonary vein stenosis. So we're really excited about the clinical outcomes to date. It, it makes things better. And so we believe that we're different. We're leading. We will continue to lead. And we're innovating in a way that I think we're years ahead of everyone that really gives us an advantage to take our position where we are today in electrophysiology and substantially improve it as we're seeing in the markets where we're already uh, approved. And I think last and, and not least to say that our intentions to continue to lead in this space are really driven by trying to take today's understanding of the problems that exist and trying to make things much better moving forward for all stakeholders. Right. Well, we, we've talked uh, about Bayless. We've talked about pulse field ablation. We've referenced Watchman a, a couple of times. Ken, could you just give us a, the overview of what the Watchman device does and, and any news on that front? Yeah, Tom. So the Watchman device is a device that gets implanted in the upper left chamber of the heart, the left atrium, in an area called the left atrial appendage. You know, as I said at the beginning, one of the concerns that you have in atrial fibrillation is blood can pool and then clot. And again, if that clot gets dislodged, that can result in a disabling stroke, heart attack, what have you. Vast majority of those clots, over 90%, originate in this specific area of the left atrium called the left atrial appendage. And the Watchman device, basically, you can think of it as a coated stent that just covers that area and seals it off. Got a large experience now with a large number of clinical trials, both observational and randomized that show that it gives comparable protection against stroke to blood thinning medications. 
what are called oral anticoagulants. And, and as a result, you know, it's been now FDA approved for many years, all right, as an alternative to oral anticoagulation for high-risk patients with what's called non-valve atrial fibrillation who have a reason to seek an alternative to oral anticoagulants. Now, the journey of Watchmen, right, is we had a new version of the device approved a few years ago called Watchman Flex that brought with it improvements, both in terms of ability to seal the left atrial appendage, but also just in terms of safety and simplicity of workflow for implanting the device. And then very recently, we had the newest generation of device approved, which is a device called Watchman Flex Pro. And Flex Pro has a number of advantages over the Flex device comes in a larger size with very large atrial appendages, has some new radio opaque markers on the periphery to aid in the workflow of the implant. But probably the most exciting thing about Flex Pro is it, it's got a unique coating on the surface of the device. We call it hemocoat. And we've shown in preclinical models that it can accelerate tissue healing over the device and hopefully prevent the development of blood clots on the outside surface of the device. It's the called device-related thrombosis. And right now, to help prevent that, patients still need to take blood thinning medications for a period after the implant. We'd like to simplify that regimen as much as possible. And it's our hope that this new chemocode technology will enable us to do that. And Nick, if you have anything to add to Watchman, please do. But another question I just had was, how are the care settings changing for electrophysiology. Where are the people you're selling to performing these procedures and will that change over the next five years? Yeah. So maybe just to add on the Watchman, the Watchman story is another incredible story. We're global leaders in that space as well. And it's the same patient. You think about the AF patient, they need to get some sort of protection. Blood thinners don't work for most people. There's a lot of reasons why we treated mm. well over 350,000 patients. Today, that procedure is done in the hospital setting, as are most of these ablations done in the hospital setting. But your question specific to uh, call it ambulatory surgery centers and what the future may hold there, we do see a potential shift over the course of time, depending on where reimbursement and call it the society's approving of these procedures being done outside of the hospital. Um, ablations are predominantly done in the hospital today, but we do see a potential shift over the course of time. And so when it comes to ablations, you know, our goal is to give people options. And one of the unique advantages of our Ferropulse system, for example, is uh, if you want to use mapping and integration, you can do that. If you don't, you don't have to. And we believe that if something's going to be moving to an ambulatory surgery center, you're probably going to see more people maybe electing for these pulmonary vein isolation procedures to do it in its simplest way and get great results and the unique advantage of Ferropulse is that you do not have to use a mapping system. And um, we've seen great results via the, uh, uh, call it the ADVENT trial that, that validates that. So we do see the potential in 2025 and beyond as, um, as a potential approval throughout the U.S. may shift that we are uniquely positioned with a lot of these different technologies, whether it's Bayless, um, whether it's uh, any one of the ablation modalities that we have available, uh, Polarex in our cryoablation system, Ferropulse with our PFA system, or even call it stable point in the future with our RF offering. We see that all being advantageous if it does shift over 
uh, in some way, shape, or form to the ambulatory surgery center. We're not sure about Watchman because you need surgical backup for that. Uh, where that'll be in the future, I think that's a little bit different. That'll probably still be in the hospital setting. But again, as I look at the portfolio, we've got a leadership position, global leadership position in call it three of those key technologies with Ferropulse, with Watchman, and with Bayless uh, in our access solutions product line that really uniquely positions us, not only whether the setting's going to be in the hospital or ambulatory surgery arena that uniquely allows us to, to win in the long term. Yeah, and Nick, maybe if I could just maybe to expand on that a bit, because even before you start thinking about moving out of the hospital to the ASC, we saw during COVID a huge impetus to not admit people to the hospital and, and, and do these procedures as day procedures. And the same advantages Nick talks about in our portfolio, again, Bayless, Polarex, Farapulse, being able to do procedures more safely, being able to do procedures more efficiently, helps in that transition to same-day procedures, even ahead of procedures moving out of the hospital to the ASC. Interesting. I want to ask one final question sort of about where we're headed, but just so I understand one specific, what what are the benefits of not having to do mapping with pulse field ablation? Is it, is it just allow for a quicker procedure? Why is that a benefit? Yeah, I can take that, Nick, if, 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 if you want. And it is, it's, it's right. It's a faster procedure. And we talk about benefits of that to the healthcare system, the hospital physicians. That's also a benefit to patients as someone who's had one of these procedures myself, you don't want to be under having any kind of procedure done on you longer than is absolutely necessary. No, nothing good happens when, when, when procedures take longer than they need to. And so for the really most straightforward types of ablations that we can do, if we can show practitioners that they can get great results without needing to map, that speeds up the procedure, it reduces the cost of the procedure to the system. It's, it's just, it's better for everyone. Excellent. I would probably add it's just going to be more cost effective. And when you look at the ambulatory surgery center, it's all about, you know, trying to get patients safely and efficiently in and out. Uh, so not only efficiency in terms of time to do a procedure, because it won't be that much more to that, but the cost. And ambulatory surgery centers will be more diligent on that, just like we see in Germany today. Nobody maps in Germany. It's predominantly because of cost. Okay. That's good to know. Final question. Uh, what's the next final frontier or the next big frontier for this space? I mean, we've been talking about the treatment of the heart itself, but is there gonna, are there going to be advances in maybe how that device is delivered to the heart? Is there an opportunity for interventional robotics? I mean, just kind of put on your futuristic goggles for a moment. How, how do you see the specialty changing? Yeah, Ken, you want to start first? All right. Yeah. I, I, uh, <laughs> I, it, now, Tom, I, I, you know, I, I love the vision in the question and it's, it's important, right? Because, you know, we, I mean, one of our core philosophies is, you know, we're, we're never done innovating and, and you always need to keep on innovating. So I, there, are, there are a couple of areas that I see as sort of the next frontier. One is expanding the range of arrhythmias that we treat with Ferropulse and pulse field ablation. So our initial trial advent was aimed at people with what's called paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. It stops and starts. We are in the second phase now of enrollment in a trial called Advantage, which looks at persistent atrial fibrillation, where it stays. And we've announced a intent to start a trial early next year called Avant-Garde, where we'll be looking at first-line 
ablation therapy as opposed to giving patients a trial of antiarrhythmic drugs first hmm. for persistent atrial fibrillation. And then down the road, you can see going even beyond atrial fibrillation into other arrhythmias like ventricular tachycardia. There are also going to be advances in the design of the catheter. We, we look at Farapulse not as a single product, but as a system. And we're going to have multiple different configurations of ablation catheters with different capabilities to deliver the Farapulse pulse energy system. As I said earlier, right? You know, you know, the kind of therapy that you get is very dependent on catheter design. And we don't believe in a one-size-fits-all. We're going to have different types of catheters for relating different types of arrhythmias. But Nick, I don't know if you want to add anything else as to how you see the future. Yeah, no, I mean, the future is incredibly bright. I think Ken did a nice job of highlighting just how we want to expand indications in other patient populations and also evaluating other lesion sets outside of the pulmonary veins with things like electroporation or ferripulse, mm -hmm. but also concomitant procedures. The opportunity to treat a patient and have an ablation and a watchman in the same setting. Today, these patients have to get two different procedures. I was wondering about that. Reimbursement doesn't cover it. And we've got a good body of evidence that'll be coming here in the next year with the trial that Ken and the team uh, executed, the option trial that uh, looked at a lot of these patients that correlate between ablation and an LAC device. And a lot of these enrollments were concomitantly done. We think we have evidence that could potentially demonstrate the safety and the efficacy of this. And we're uniquely positioned when you look at products like uh, Watchman and Ferripulse in the same procedural setting to give patients what we believe one procedure being more efficient for payers, being more efficient for hospitals and not having workflow backup of having two different procedures scheduled. And most importantly, you know, really benefiting what we think the patient having one procedure done versus two. So the future is really bright in terms of all of these technologies, expanding indications and the opportunity to treat these patients in some sort of concomitant setting that really benefits everyone. Fantastic. Well, those were both reasonable and practical answers. I'm disappointed neither of you bit at my robotics piece of bait, but uh, we love talking about robotics, but this is good too. This is great. Thank you so much for uh, for the overview and uh, look forward to, uh, to, of course, tracking your progress in the future. Well, yeah, thanks, appreciate it. thanks for your time. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Boston Scientific Talks. Thanks to Dassault Systems for sponsoring. Please subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network so you don't miss a future episode of Boston Scientific Talks and our other great podcasts. Please also share this episode of Boston Scientific Talks. And when you're there on LinkedIn, reach out to me, connect to me. I am Tom Salemi, Editorial Director of Device Talks. Once again, I hope you subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network on any major podcast player. You can also find all of our great podcasts at devicetalks.com. All right, folks, thanks so much again for joining us. Have a great day. We'll have another episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast coming to you soon.